in your copy of the scriptures this morning, I would like to ask you to turn to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. I think it's helpful for us to remember that Romans 9 through 11, all three of these chapters are dealing with one overarching issue. And that is, why is it that so many Israelite people have not believed in Jesus Christ as their Savior? From a historical, biblical perspective, it seems like they, they should have been the most welcoming. Turning to Christ by the thousands and tens and hundreds of thousands. And after hundreds of years of anticipation and listening to the prophets foretell of a son of David who would come. That the Jewish people, the, the descendants of Abraham, the descendants of Isaac and Jacob, that, that these people would be the ones who would welcome Jesus of Nazareth with open arms and believe in him and trust in him as their savior. But what we see from the time of Jesus during his own life and ministry, as well as during the time of Paul and his ministry, is that that response did not happen. By and large, there were many, many Israelite people, many descendants of Abraham, who did not accept Jesus as their Messiah. And Paul has been wrestling with that question throughout all of Romans 9 through 11. In Romans chapter 9, he was primarily wrestling with it from the perspective of the faithfulness of God and the sovereignty of God. In chapter 10 really beginning in chapter 9, verse 30, and then going on into chapter 10, Paul has been looking at it from more the human side of the equation and looking at it from the perspective of Israel's failure and their disobedience, their rejection of the gospel, their failure to believe in Jesus, and the responsibility that they themselves carry for that rejection. And so in Romans 9.30 through all the way through chapter 10, Paul has essentially been saying this, that the Israelite people were pursuing God, but they were pursuing him the wrong way. They were pursuing him by means of their own righteousness of the law. And they were not pursuing him out of faith. And so Paul says because they were pursuing God and, and a right standing before God, justification before God, because they were pursuing him out of their own righteousness, out of their own obedience to the law, they did not attain it. They did not reach that goal. Why? Because nobody can, right? Nobody can reach the goal of a right standing with God on the basis of our own works, on the basis of trying to obey the law. The Jews could not do it. Certainly we cannot do it. So they pursued him the wrong way. He says they had zeal. They had a lot of zeal, a lot of, a lot of uh, care and love and zeal for the law of God, but they were going about it all the wrong way. 
He says their zeal was devoid of knowledge. It was devoid of the knowledge of the gospel. And what is the gospel? The gospel is Jesus Christ, right? Jesus Christ, God, come in the flesh. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of David, the long-promised Messiah, the anointed one of God, had finally come. And when he came, he lived as a, a Jewish man. He lived as a human being, as a Jew, and he grew up in Israel, in the midst of the Jewish people. And he lived what they could never have lived. Because Jesus obeyed the law, didn't he? He obeyed the law perfectly. He fulfilled his father's will perfectly. He did not have the stain of original sin. He did not have the the stain of Adamic guilt. He did not fail in temptation, but he succeeded in temptation. And so he accomplished what none of the Israelite people ever accomplished, and that was to fully obey the law and please God. And so he came as God's representative, as our representative, to live for us and then to go to the cross and to suffer and to die for us and then rise again for us that we might have life. And what is the response to these things? It is faith. It is faith in Christ, in who he is and what he has done. And the Israelite people missed it. They crucified their Messiah. Even though Isaiah predicted there would be a servant who would come, who would suffer, and by his wounds we would be healed. Even though Isaiah predicted that, they missed it. They did not see him for who he was, and they crucified him on a cross, and they rejected him. And now, years and years, and even decades after that, Paul is ministering, and they're continuing to reject Jesus as the Messiah. So... They're stubborn. They're stiff-necked people. They're a hard-hearted people. And that's consistent with their whole history, isn't it? Going all the way back to the Exodus. They're a stubborn, complaining, stiff-necked, hard-hearted people. And they have failed to receive the gospel. So Paul puts it on them. He puts it on their shoulders that they have failed to receive the gospel. As he ends in chapter 10, verse 21, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. That's God saying, I have opened my arms to Israel, but they have continually been a hard-hearted and obstinate people. So that leads Paul then to ask another question, a rhetorical question that he wants wants us to think about because it deals with the character of God once again and with God's plans and purposes. Remember, he did the same thing back at the beginning of chapter 9 in talking about Israel's rejection and their failure to believe that they were not being saved. Paul asked the question, so has the word of God failed? Has God's word, has his promise, has his, has his covenant with his people failed? And all of chapter 9 was to answer that in an emphatic no. God's word has not failed. Now he asks another question 
that deals with the character of God and his relationship to his historic chosen people, the Israelites. And the question is this. Did God reject his people? Another way of saying that would be, is God, and in light of everything I've just said, about how stubborn and stiff-necked and rebellious Israel is, in spite of the fact that Jesus has come now, and the gospel has been preached to them, and it's been right in front of their eyes. They, he said back in chapter 10, it's not as if they didn't know it. They knew it. They heard it. It was there right in front of them. They didn't have to go up to heaven to get it and bring it down. They didn't have to go into the depths of the earth to bring it up. It was right there in front of them, and they rejected it. So he says, so I ask, did God reject his people? And by that, I think he means, is God done with them? Is God done with them? Have have the Israelite people as a whole finally broken the, the last straw? And is God done with them? What's his answer? By no means. God forbid. May it never be. It's the strongest possible negative answer that you could give. May it never be. Absolutely not. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left and they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I've reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see, ears that could not hear to this very day. And David says, May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and their backs be bent forever. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we have this time, these few minutes today to come before your word and to to listen to it, to, to seek to understand it, to apply its truths. So Father, open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to understand, to welcome and receive your truth. May your spirit do his work among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this, this whole passage is about this question. Did God reject his people? And the answer is no. God has not rejected Israel. Who does he mean by Israel? He means Israel as a whole. The, the people that he entered into covenant with, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He has not cast off his people. He has not rejected them. He is not through with them. By no means. Okay, so how can we know this, Paul? 
how can we know that God has not rejected his Israelite people? And he gives several responses here, several lines of argument. The first one is himself. Paul, how can you say that God has not rejected his people when all of these Israelites are not believing in Jesus as the Messiah? His first answer is, God has not rejected his people because I am one of his people. And I believe in Jesus. So he says, I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. So he's, he's just identifying himself as a descendant of Abraham. He says, I'm a tribe of Benjamin, really just to, to overemphasize the fact that he is a true Jew. So he is a true Jew. In fact, what we know of Paul's life, he was, a, he was like a hyper Jew, wasn't he? He was like a, he was a Pharisee. He was, he was in line to become probably the next great master teacher of Israel. He had stuttered under Gamaliel, who was one of the, the, probably the elite rabbi, master teacher of Israel at that time. Paul was a Pharisee, part of this elite group of scholars and teachers. And he was probably one of the ones who was next in line to be the top dog. He was out there zealous. He, he didn't lack for zeal, did he? He was out there zealously persecuting the church. This group of followers of Jesus that he thought were heretics and blasphemers, he was out there trying to find them and arrest them and persecute them. He was zealous. He was a Pharisee, a tribe of Benjamin. He was a descendant of Abraham. But what is he now? By the grace of God, he is a Christian. By the grace of God, he is a follower of Jesus Christ. He is a recipient of the gospel of grace. God got a hold of him, didn't he? On that road to Damascus, God got a hold of him, shone the light of the brighter than the noonday sun on him, dropped Paul to his knees and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Jesus called him to himself and he became a follower of Jesus and now an apostle to the Gentiles. And basically what Paul is saying is, I am an Israelite who is also a Christian. That is proof that God has not completely rejected the Israelite people. So for him, there is... There is sufficient proof in that there is one saved Jew who believes in Jesus Christ. That's enough proof to show that God has not rejected Israel. But Paul's not the only one, is he? There are many others. Many, many others. On the day of Pentecost, when Peter stood up and preached his sermon, there were thousands who responded to the message of the gospel. But Paul's point is, even if I were the only one, that would be sufficient to prove that God had not rejected Israel. Then he goes back to the Old Testament to look for some more proof. And this proof not only is related to the present situation of what Paul's dealing with, but it also shows a pattern in the way God does things, doesn't it? It shows that, 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 that what's happening now in Paul's day with the Israelite people is not unique. 
that really this has been the way that God has worked throughout history with his people. So he goes back to 1 Kings 19, which we read a few moments ago. And he says, Don't you know what Scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I am the only one left, and they're trying to kill me. So you remember the context of this. In 1 Kings 18 and 19, you have Elijah, who was a true prophet of God. He called all of these false prophets of Baal up to the mountain, and they had this contest. Okay, if, if, you're, if Baal is really God, then let him rain down fire on this altar and consume the sacrifice. But if the Lord, if Yahweh, if he is God, if he is the true God, then he will rain down fire and consume this sacrifice. And you know how it went, right? All the prophets of Baal, they're, they're working themselves up, they're cutting themselves, they're, they're crying out, they're dancing around, they're doing everything they can to summon the power of Baal to come down and rain fire on them, and nothing but crickets, right? Just silence, nothing, no response. Elijah starts to mock them. Maybe he's out on a trip. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe you've got to wake him up. And then Elijah just prays. After he flooded the thing with water... He prays and says, Lord, show yourself to be the one true God. And boom, fire comes out of the sky and, and licks the whole thing up and melts the, the, not just the sacrifice, but the altar. And Elijah says, okay, you've got your answer. Now, if you're really with God, go kill all these prophets of Baal. And they were all dead. Great victory, right? Seems like a great victory. Elijah's on the mountaintop. But in 1 Kings 19, we see him in the valley. Why? Because Jezebel got word of what happened, and Jezebel was not happy. And Jezebel really ran that kingdom. And Jezebel said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have you just like them by tomorrow. 24 hours, and you're going to be just like those prophets that, of Baal that you killed on the mountaintop. I'm going to kill you, Elijah. And even though God had just rained down fire from heaven and consumed a sacrifice, and, and all the prophets of Baal are now gone, Elijah is worn out. And he's tired, and he's afraid, and he runs for his life. It's a very human response to the situation. And he goes out, and he's alone. God feeds him. God brings some angels, feed him, encourage him, give him rest. And then God comes to him and speaks to him while he's in the cave and reassures him, Elijah, you are not alone. You are not alone alone. What was the situation of Elijah's day? The situation of Elijah's day was one of great apostasy, wasn't it? Great apostasy. Israel as a whole had rejected God. Israel as a whole was engaged in false worship and idolatry. Had God rejected Israel? No. As proof of that, you have Elijah. And as further proof of that, God comforts him and reassures him with the fact that, Elijah, you're not alone. I've got 7,000 others who have not worshipped Baal and pledged their allegiance to him. In other words, 
there was a remnant, right? There was a remnant that had not apostatized, that had not gone into false worship, into paganism and idolatry. And that was proof that God had not abandoned his people. Now, Paul brings that to his day, and he says, that's how it is today, too. Verse 5, so, too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Going back to verse 2 for a moment, he says, God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. And this is a quote from 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 22, and, and, the, and the, the thrust, I think, of verse number 2 is simply this. How could God reject his people, the ones that he himself chose? And that's the idea of foreknowledge, isn't it? That foreknowledge is not just that God knows something ahead of time. We saw this back in Romans 8, 28 and 29. Foreknowledge is God's love. Foreknowledge is God's knowing personally someone and setting his loving choice on them. And we can see that here because it's the opposite of reject. The opposite of reject is he foreknew them. He chose them. So how could God reject his people whom he foreknew? In other words, it was a complete impossibility in Paul's mind. And as proof of that, you have him and you have Elijah and you have these 7,000 that, that showed that God had not abandoned his people. And so he says, it's just like today. In this present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Who's the remnant? The remnant is Paul. The remnant is Peter and James and John and Mary and Martha and Lazarus, Barnabas, Timothy. They're the remnant. They're, they're the ones that God has called to himself out of Israel. And that fits perfectly with what he said back in chapter 9, isn't it? That there is an Israel within an Israel, isn't there? Not all who are of Israel are Israel. In other words, you have Israel, the big Israel, and then you have the real Israel. The remnant Israel. And that remnant Israel is one that is by God's gracious election. Why are they a part of the remnant? Not because of anything they've done. And he affirms that in verse 6, because if it's by grace, then it can't be based on works. Because if it were, then grace would no longer be grace. In other words, the operating principle of grace is that it is not deserved. And this is true even back in chapter 9, isn't it? When he was talking about Jacob and Esau. Why is it that Jacob was chosen and not Esau? Well, it's because Jacob was better than Esau, right? No, he throws that out the window when he says, no, they were twins. Even before they were born, while they were still in the womb, before either one of them had done good or bad, God said the elder will serve the younger. It's not based on works. It's based on him who calls. It's not based on works. It's based on grace. And grace completely eliminates any merit 
or worthiness whatsoever. In other words, all human considerations have to be taken off of the table in order for it to be grace. That's the principle of grace. And so God's way of working is he chooses a remnant by grace. And that remnant of grace is sufficient to show and prove that God has not rejected his people. That's his whole point right here. Has God rejected his people? No. What's the proof? There's a remnant. There's a remnant. And that remnant of saved, graciously chosen individuals loved by God, that remnant is proof that God has not forsaken the Israelite people. And if you look through biblical history, this is the way that God has worked, isn't it? You could go through book after book after book in the Old Testament, and you can see this principle at work of God saving a remnant. You can go back to Genesis, and you can see that God is saving a remnant. You can even start in the Garden of Eden, essentially, and you can, you can see how God was starting to work through the line of Seth, right? Not the line of Cain. You can see that when it came to Noah, that God's judgment rained down on this wicked people. But what did God do? He saved a remnant, didn't he? He saved a remnant, Noah and his family. He rescued them by grace. Then he called out Abraham. Out of all of these people, he called out Abraham. Out of Abraham, he called out Isaac, not Ishmael. Out of Isaac, he called out Jacob, not Esau. This principle has been at work all the way through. And then we can even get to the time of the exile, can't we? When all of Israel is disobedient, all of Israel has rejected God, and God is going to send them into captivity, and he's going to send them into Babylon. But what does he say? What do the prophets say? There's going to be a remnant. There's going to be a remnant. There's going to be this little stump of a tree that's left, and God is going to regrow his people out of that little stump of a tree that's left in Israel. That's his remnant. He's been doing the same thing throughout all of history. And so what Paul is saying here is what is happening today is just like the way that God has been working among Israel from the very beginning. And those who are recipients of salvation are, are recipients of it, not because they deserve it, but because God was gracious. So what then? Verse 7. What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. And that goes back to what he was saying about the way that they were seeking for it. The way that they were seeking for it was by obedience to the law seeking to obtain righteousness through obedience to the law. They were zealous, they were earnest, but they did not obtain it. Why? Because salvation is not something that is obtained, is it? Salvation is not something that is worked for. Salvation is not something that is earned. Salvation is granted. 
So they sought for it, but they sought for it the wrong way. They sought to do it in their own strength and their own power, but they did not obtain it. Now, the elect among them did. The remnant among them did. And literally, the way this is phrased in Greek is the election obtained it. Putting emphasis on God's graciousness in bestowing salvation. So the remnant have received salvation, but what about the rest? What about the rest of these Israelites who today are not believing in Jesus as their Savior? The rest were hardened, Paul says. Now, this goes back to chapter 9, doesn't it? When Paul established that a part of the nature of who God is, is to give mercy to whom he will, and to whom he will, he hardens, right? That's a part of who God is and within his right as creator. And so these who are not believing in Jesus as Messiah, these who have rejected him, they are hardened. As it is written, and he goes back to the Old Testament, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see, and ears that could not hear to this very day. And from Psalm 69, David says, May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and their backs be bent forever. We talked about this when we were back in Romans chapter 9 and asking the question, how, how is it that, how, how can God harden someone? How does that work? And we talked about the fact that everyone that God hardens, it is just, isn't it? It's just. It's righteous. And it is fair. Because every single one of us deserves hardening. Every single one of us does. And so God is gracious to whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. And the thing is, the Israelite people, those who do not believe in Jesus, they have brought this on themselves because they have borne the responsibility of rejecting Jesus as their Messiah. As I think about this passage, and I think about the way that we should respond to it, I can't help but think that the the best way to respond to this passage is to respond with gratitude. To respond with praise. To respond with a humble thankfulness for what God has done for us. Realizing that our eyes have been opened to see. Why? Because we did something great? Because somehow we're worthy? No, because it's not of works. Otherwise, it wouldn't be by grace. Nothing in us at all. Nothing that we did, nothing that we deserved, nothing that God saw in us. God was gracious. Just the fact that we've heard the gospel and our eyes have been opened to see it and to understand it and to believe in it, that is a gracious act of God. And he is worthy of praise. So what about the rest who have been hardened? Here's the amazing thing. And we're going to see this as we move forward into Romans chapter 11. But amazingly enough, 
in God's mysterious ways of working. The hardening of the Israelites, many of the Israelites who did not believe their hardening, Paul says, resulted in your salvation and my salvation. What do you mean? We're going to see in Romans chapter 11 that the hardening of Israel meant mercy for the Gentiles. Are you a Gentile or a Jew? Probably most of us in this room, as far as I know, are Gentiles, ethnically speaking. We don't trace our lineage back through Jewishness, through the line of Abraham. So every single one of us, we are beneficiaries of the grace of God. And the mysterious way in which God was working, in which he brought hardening and darkening to many of the people of Israel, so that the gospel would go out to the world. And so that the Gentiles would become recipients of the grace of God. So then is God done with Israel then? No, he's going to get back to that as well and show that this hardening of Israel, it's not permanent, but it's partial and it's temporary. And God has something great in store for the Israelite people in the future. And all of this is part of the mysterious, gracious ways of God in accomplishing his salvation to the world. And so our response should be, Wow, God, you are, this is amazing that God, you would look upon me with mercy and with favor and that you would put me into your family. God is gracious. He saves by grace, not because of anything that we've done. And may that lead us to incredible joy and praise and thankfulness. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father God, we thank you that we can look to your word today for wisdom, for truth, to be reminded of your ways, Lord. How in your wisdom and sovereignty, you are calling a people to yourself. By grace, you are drawing people to the gospel from among the Jews, but also, praise God, from among the Gentiles. And you are forming, by your gracious plan, a new and redeemed people from every tribe, tongue, and nation on earth to be the one new people of God. Thank you, Lord, that your grace has come to us. My prayer is that everyone here would know Jesus by faith. So, Lord, accomplish your purposes in us, grow us, help us to become more and more grateful, more zealous witnesses of the tremendous gospel of Jesus Christ. And, Lord, may we always be thankful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.